Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and it's serious trouble. In late December, as we're, we're heading in toward Christmas, traditionally the news cycle slows down a little bit at this time of year. And I'd say it's sort of done that on the, on the legal news side. But we thought we would do something a little bit different this week. We, we talk a lot on this show about people who are terrible clients. Sam Bankman-Fried seems like a nightmare if you're trying to be his lawyer and keep him out of prison. Donald Trump is a notoriously terrible legal client, and we have spent a lot of time talking about the rotating cast of lawyers who get swapped in and out as people try to manage his legal affairs. And something we get questions about from time to time is basically, you know, we talk about all these bad clients. What can you do to be a good client? And so uh, since we have Ken White here, an extremely experienced uh, practitioner on both the criminal and the civil sides, we thought that this was a good opportunity to talk about should you have the misfortune uh, to require the services of somebody similar to Ken, what can you do uh, in order to, sh- to be sure that you're good at being a client? So, Ken, what, uh, what are you thinking about here in terms of, of what we can instruct our listeners in the, in the eventuality that, uh, that that sort of thing happens? Well, Josh, I do think it's a worthwhile topic, and uh, not that I don't have fun talking about terrible clients, but I think it would be worthwhile to talk about being a good one. And I want to make it clear, I'm not just talking about this for the purpose of not annoying me, of not making my <laughs> life miserable. Although if you would avoid that, that would be a mitzvah. But this is all stuff that if you did, you would be more likely to succeed in your legal dispute. It would go more smoothly and you would avoid disaster. So yes, there's a series of things you can do to make yourself an easier client and therefore a more successful client. So I guess let's start from the beginning, the moment when somebody realizes they need a lawyer. And I guess let's start with a criminal scenario and we can talk about civil litigation in a little bit. But so, you know, part of the problem is that people come to realize too late that they even need a lawyer, right? So like, what is the thing that happens in your life where it's like, not only do I need a lawyer, I need to figure out how to be a good client with this lawyer in order to protect myself? Could be a variety of ways. Maybe you get... Uh, a summons in the mail. You've already been charged with some minor crime. Maybe the FBI shows up at your door knocking and asking if they can talk to you. Or maybe your company gets a subpoena asking for all of your communications with some government official. Any of these things might tip you off. Uh, There's a criminal investigation going on. Or maybe you full out got arrested and that's finally enough to get through to you that you have some issues. But so, I mean, sometimes when the FBI calls and wants to talk to you, it's because you're you're being investigated. You are a subject or a target of an investigation. Uh, And there's a lot of risk uh, that if you mishandle that. You may be charged. Of course, maybe, you know, maybe you're going to be charged anyway, depending on exactly what you were up to and what they know about it. Um, But there are some situations where there's a lot of risk there. But there's other situations where the FBI or the police want to talk to you, and it really is just because you're a witness or something. There are situations where the police want to talk to you, and, and it's not something where, you know, a a likely eventuality is that you end up facing criminal charges. So how do you figure out which of those situations you're in? Um, Because it's not literally the case that any time the police try to talk to anybody, that person needs to immediately start having a strategy about not going to jail. Sure. Uh, So like if you witnessed a shooting at the bank uh, or a car crash or something like that, then you can probably count on yourself only being a witness. But whenever there's a series of transactions or the more white collar, the more financial they are, the more complicated they are, the more ambiguity there could be, you need to show a level of humility about what you understand or don't understand, what you know or don't know. And if you're not completely confident, you understand the situation. 
then you should make any mistake in the direction of seeking legal advice. And sometimes even when you're merely a witness, it's a good idea to seek legal advice because a lawyer can protect you from being misused and and disrespected and generally uh, not treated appropriately in your capacity as a witness. What do you do in that situation? You know, suppose an FBI agent shows up at your door and would like to talk with you and you don't have a lawyer yet. Literally, what do you what do you say to them in that situation? Say, thank you. I'll be happy to talk to you after I speak with my lawyer and stop talking. To and then what, they, they give you a business card or something? They give you a business card. They try to talk you out of it. They say, oh, really? Are you sure you want to bring lawyers into this? You know, because that makes it more complicated than when maybe we think you have something to hide. Blah, 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 blah. You just tell them, thank you. Maybe I'll talk to you later. I want to talk to my lawyer. And then you shut up and you ignore their blandishments and their attempts to seduce you into talking to them uh, because they will try. The the key thing to do once you realize you may be in trouble is to resist the very human urge to do stuff, Hmm. okay? Whether it's criminal or civil trouble, clients tend to have an overwhelming urge to handle it, to fix it. If I'm not doing something to move my defense forward at this moment, I'm wasting time and things are getting worse. In fact, for most clients, doing things makes things worse (laughs) until they get competent legal advice about what they should be doing. You don't make good decisions under stress. You don't know yet whether what you do will help or hurt. You don't yet know exactly what's being investigated or the legal significance of what what you've done or what you're proposing to do. And you don't know what you're going to reveal that the authorities don't already know. So stop doing stuff and shut up. Does the way that a person should approach this, is it affected by whether they are or are not, in fact, guilty of the thing that the government might be interested in? No. Uh, The reason is that uh, you might not be guilty, but the government might think you are. And if you handle it wrong, it can go badly. Uh, If you handle it wrong, if, for instance, out of stress or panic, you lie, then all of a sudden you are guilty of something. You've just lied to the government. For example, Martha Stewart quite possibly never committed insider trading. They never charged her with insider trading. She was never convicted of insider trading. And if she had just kept quiet, it's entirely likely that she would have faced no legal trouble around that. Maybe she didn't even commit a crime. But she lied to investigators in the process of them investigating her stock trades and therefore ended up in prison. I think that's sort of like a, a classic example. Well, yes, and, th- and that one is purely on her lawyers. They took her in to talk to the government, knowing who she was and what she was like, what her personality was like. And uh, that was basically like walking Snoop into a dispensary and expecting him to abstain, uh, walking Martha Stewart into an FBI interview and expecting her to sort of maintain and cool it and not kind of be Martha Stewart was a little dumb. Um <laughs> So you don't know whether you're guilty or not, Josh, a lot of the time, if it, particularly if it's a complex white-collar issue. You don't know what they're investigating. They're not going to tell you the truth of exactly what they're investigating. So I'm going to challenge from the start the premise, because mm-hmm. if you think you're not guilty, you might be. You might have done something, and the best way to know is to talk to a professional. So you stop doing something other than looking for a lawyer, and you shut, and I must emphasize this, the fuck up. Immediately, (laughs) conclusively, and all the way. You can talk to your spouse. You can talk to your religious advisor. You can talk to lawyers. 
on your side who might represent you, but you do not talk to anyone else. You especially do not talk to other people involved in whatever it is the government is investigating. You do not call your business partner and say, hey, remember that Bitcoin we sold? You're <laughs> calling me and asking me questions about it. You do not have those conversations. You stop talking. And by talking, I include tweeting, posting, tooting, Facebooking, Instagramming, TikToking, or any other form of human communication. So uh, most people, I think, don't have a, a criminal attorney like, you know, in their Rolodex in the way that they have their barber and their dentist. Uh, so if you suddenly come into a position of needing a criminal attorney, how do you find one? Great question. So if you're not already in an industry uh, realm where you know one, then you want to find one. Your, your first set of people to talk to would be family and close friends who have used lawyers, maybe not a criminal lawyer, but they've used lawyers and they might ask their lawyer for a referral. The next would be other professional people in your life. It might be your doctor or your dentist or you know, your brother-in-law who runs a company or whatever it is. Uh, the trick is you want to ask them, can, do you know any lawyers who do criminal law or does your lawyer know any lawyers who do criminal law? And you start looking that way. I mean, does it make sense to like, I mean, you know, like I, I bought a house. I had an attorney for that real estate transaction. Would it make sense to go to someone like that and say, do you have criminal practitioners you recommend? Absolutely. Uh, because lawyers are more likely than other professionals to know lawyers in a particular uh, field. And they also might start pointing you in the right direction. So if you tell them, hey, I just got this federal grand jury subpoena. Do you know any criminal lawyers? They might they might know to say, oh, yeah, well, you're going to need a criminal, a federal criminal lawyer. And I know someone who who does that. So they might start heading it in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And then how do you figure out who is a good lawyer to hire? If you have, you know, if if you have a number of options there, I mean, just because your your friend's friend knows this lawyer doesn't mean that person is a good lawyer that they're the right lawyer for you. How do you figure out if you're hiring the right attorney? That one's hard. That one's very complicated. But generally, you don't do it based on advertisements on bus stops or on, you know, uh, outside advertising, not on whether their jingle is catchy, uh, nothing like that. You can look at their online reviews and that might tell you a little, but that's very dicey. You can look at their press mentions by Googling them. That's also dicey because the people who get in the paper the most are not necessarily the best, most effective lawyers. Ultimately, if you're not in a position to evaluate yourself, you might need to talk again to some trusted friends and family. What do you think about this person? How do they look? Can you ask your lawyer who you know represented you in that civil suit whether they have a good reputation? Things like that. That's where you would start. And then you have to start evaluating them yourself based on how they interact with you. Lawyers are expensive. I mean, especially good lawyers. I mean, I assume a lot of people, I mean, so, sometimes you're talking about a wealthy business person, you know, with a, you know, with a complex white collar situation who also has a lot of money. And then they're basically like, well, I'm going to go find the best person and I'm prepared, even though the bill is going to be large to do that. But for a lot of people, I mean, in addition to being an extremely unpleasant situation, and this is likely to be a large unplanned expense that they may not have tremendous capacity to deal with. So what do you do? 
if you, you know, if, if you really need to be careful about how much money you're spending in this process where you don't even know that you're going to be a criminal defendant. I mean, you're, you're starting to spend money before there's even a legal case that you're defending yourself in. Well, you have to make some hard choices. You have to know that eventually if you're charged with a crime and you can't afford a lawyer, the government will provide one for you. Despite people's fears, they're often quite good lawyers, especially in, in the federal system. And then you might meet, need to make the decision that, well, I can't afford this now. Uh, and that may influence your decision of whether or not to talk to the FBI or the cops or whoever it is. You might decide, because I can't afford right now good legal advice about whether or not to do this, I'm not going to do it. That's the wiser choice. You might have to borrow money from family or friends. You might have to take out a second on your house. You know, it's 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 not fair, but there it is. That, that's the reality. And you have to kind of make a call early on about how bad it seems, how dangerous it seems, and whether you should really make some kind of finance-altering big choices about it. Before we move on to the the conversation that you would have with this attorney when, once you've hired them, I want to ask about, you know, if, if you go to your friends or your business associates and say, you know, I got this grand jury summons, I'm looking for a criminal lawyer, do you have recommendations? They're going to have questions. I mean, either, be, I mean, that's, you know, that's an unusual thing. They might be concerned about you personally, or who knows, they might be skeptical about you. Um, they'll have questions about why the government might have interest in you in a criminal proceeding. And I assume, you know, that you you don't want to get into detailed conversations about that, but one completely reasonable instinct that people have is they need to protect their reputation. They don't want to think they don't want their business associates to think they're criminals. They don't want their clients to think they're criminals, and then maybe they lose clients. They don't want their families to either you know think negatively of them or to worry about the, the possibility that they have significant risk in, in the judicial system. So how do people? People are going to be really uncomfortable in a lot of cases, basically just saying, well, I can't talk about that. I can't confirm or deny anything, that sort of thing. So how, did, how can people navigate those conversations in a way that is maximally comfortable without causing themselves problems? Well, you have to have sort of hard uh, evaluations with yourself about who you trust and what your relationship is like with people. So if you've got a relative you know, maybe a parent who is super nervous and anxious is going to flip out over this, then you don't go to them. But if you've got a sibling who is the calm, hard-headed, sensible one, then maybe you go to them instead. Similarly, you probably don't go to your rival at work who you're jockeying <laughs> for that next promotion with. And maybe you don't go to your boss if you don't have a great relationship with the boss. You go to people with whom you have a high level of trust and you just tell them, you know, I have this issue. I know enough to know that I shouldn't talk about what's going on, but I want to talk to a lawyer. And I hope you'll respect that, you know, I'm making a choice not to talk about it until I talk to the lawyer. But can you help me with that? OK, so you found a lawyer. You're having your first meeting with the lawyer. How do you prepare for that and what do you do in that meeting? So often it's going to be by phone. And let me tell you something that's it's probably a little more applicable for civil disputes than criminal ones. You need to develop an elevator pitch. By that, I mean you need to come up with a short, punchy explanation of what's going on that the lawyer can then question you about to get more information. Let me explain why. You know, we're not dealing here with the way lawyers would be in a perfect world. We're dealing with lawyers as they are, overworked, stressed, terrible alcoholism and drug abuse rates, terrible suicide rates, high levels of dissatisfaction with their career, and often very under the gun in terms of work. Mm -hmm. So if you could be the person 
who doesn't make their life miserable, you're more likely to convince the lawyer to represent you and you're more likely to get good questions. So an elevator pitch is something like this. My next door neighbor tore down their houses and is rebuilding it. We got into a dispute. He shoved me. I shoved back. He fell down, hit his head. And now they're investigating me for assault. Mm -hmm. That's an elevator pitch. Okay. This is a very typical one that is not an elevator pitch. <laughs> okay, so the people who live next door to us for 40 years were our best friends, the Mulcahy's. We talked to them all this time. Honestly, I thought that Bill, the son, might even marry our daughter, Imogen, because he was wonderful, even if he did have three testicles. We didn't know that for a weird reason. It's because he always <laughs> played as a toddler in our sprinklers. Anyway, I think Bill is a pilot now, and I'm not sure. Uh, but anyway, they were our neighbors for 40 years, and they were wonderful. But two years ago, these new names, and so you see, <laughs> and yeah. with the greatest respect, this is more a problem the older the prospective client is, <laughs> um, and it's really an obstruction to hiring someone. And here's why. The way lawyers think is they're listening to this prospective client trying to issue spot. Mm -hmm. And it's very frustrating when the prospective client is just flooding you with irrelevant information. So I'm thinking about three testicle law uh, under both state and federal <laughs> jurisdictions, and I don't need to be. Right. Uh, so the most effective way, because this is going to, this is the way that's going to make the lawyer think, Hey, this person is clear. They're concise. They're going to be a pleasure to work with. I can work with this person. So you come in, you say, this is my problem. And then the lawyer can start asking questions and you answer those questions directly. You shouldn't see it as a therapy session. If you hire a lawyer, there may come times when the lawyer will be a, a de facto therapist. But don't make this first session be one. Uh, come in knowing what the issue is, having thought about it, or at least what you think the issue is, and ideally having gathered relevant information that you have. Like, you know, if you've been in an email war with someone for two years, pull the emails. If someone just sued you for breach of contract, it would probably be helpful if you pulled the contract. Mm -hmm. Things like that, having given a little thought to what this lawyer is going to have to help you with. And so when you when you say you you want to make the the lawyer want to work with you, I mean, th this is not the way things work with most other professionals that I might hire. I mean, a doctor is taking new patients or isn't, um, but I don't ordinarily have to like call up the practice and convince them that I am an interesting or desirable patient. And so, is it fairly likely that you know you you find a lawyer that you that you think you're going to want to hire and you go to them, and they decline to rep represent you for one reason or another? Well, the place where this is the biggest issue, Josh, is where you are a prospective plaintiff, where you think you have a lawsuit against mm -hmm. somebody. And if you go into that scenario, unable to articulate what the issue is, high likelihood they're just going to say, this doesn't sound like it's for us. Mm -hmm. But even with as a civil defendant or a, someone possibly in criminal trouble, if you can't articulate what's going on, uh, the lawyer is going to smell trouble and make a pretty quick call about whether or not I want to do this. And they might quote you a number to back you off, to, to scare you off. Hmm. Um, and yeah, and, and they may not be able to even discern whether it's in their area if you can't articulate it clearly. Mm -hmm. So yes, uh, lawyers don't take every case that calls. Sometimes it's because the price point isn't right for the client. Sometimes it's because it's outside the lawyer's wheelhouse, what they specialize in. But sometimes it's just because the client 
just doesn't seem to be able to communicate and you recognize it's going to be a long-term problem. And so in that first conversation, you also discussed financial terms, as you described there. Would you quote an hourly rate? Would you estimate? You, what, I mean, because obviously, if you're in the situation where charges haven't even been, been filed yet, I assume you can't reliably estimate what the entire cost of the representation would be at that point. How do you, how do you discuss money? Well, it's good to discuss money in the first call so you know whether or not this lawyer is within you know, the realm that you could possibly pay. And it's good to be basically familiar with some of the different ways lawyers get paid. We get paid hourly sometimes. Sometimes we'll get paid a flat rate for a case or a task. Like, you know, it might be not uncommon to charge $10,000 to handle a DUI case, start to finish, no matter what happens. Uh, sometimes we get paid on contingency if the person's suing for money and might plausibly recover some. So you want to have in your head you know, what you might be asking for, what you can afford, that type of thing. You're right. If there are no charges yet, it's very hard to estimate how much it might cost. And it might cost very little. It might just be a couple of meetings and you figure out you're not in trouble and the lawyer helps you interact with the government and it's done. Or this might be the first step towards a long case where you are going to be charged and the lawyer is going to be representing you. But it's good to know what their hourly rates are, how much of a fee deposit they're going to require, whether or not the fee deposit is going to be what's called evergreen, meaning the lawyer wants there always to be 10000 or whatever it is in your trust account, um, and uh, sort of know whether this is in the realm of someone you can potentially afford. And so suppose that works out and you hire this person that you have met with or, or spoken with. At this pre-charge stage, what, what is the attorney likely to do? Uh, assuming a uh, assuming a criminal proceeding, and then we can we can talk about um, you know an incipient uh, civil case. Sure. So we, say the FBI wants to talk to you, and you're not clear why, and you're worried it might not be purely as a witness. An attorney is going to you know if you've gotten a subpoena or something like that is going to carefully look at it and see what they can figure out from that. If it's the FBI agents. Uh, left a card. They're going to look the agent up, figure out what squad they're on, what type of work they do. They're going to very carefully debrief you about the whole situation, ask you to gather documents uh, or facts so that they can try to figure out what they may be looking into. And then we're generally going to try to call the FBI agent, uh, the, the prosecutor, if there is one on the case yet, and, uh, you know, social engineer them a little bit to try to figure out whether or not this client is in trouble or not, and if so, how much. Mm -hmm. And those are the types of things that are going to go on. And so I assume, depending on the context, you might have an attorney who would have a pre-existing personal relationship with some of these figures? Possibly. More likely in the case of prosecutors, mm -hmm. uh, particularly in smaller districts. Uh, but it, that's perfectly plausible. And so then once the once you've done that sort of the sounding out, the social engineering, then you would like then the client would be taking advice from you on whether to sit for an interview. You would go with them to sit for the interview if they were doing that. You would figure out what does the next stage look like? 
depends on what the client's situation is. The situation may be, I've, I've satisfied myself that you're purely as a witness. I've known this prosecutor for 20 years. He says, you're just a witness. I can come with you to the interview if you want, but I don't judge it as essential given the nature of what they're looking for. You know, that's the best case scenario type thing where you think it's going to be a one and done 10 minute talk. Right. All the way up to, well, I, unfortunately, I've talked to the prosecutor. You're a subject meaning that you may or may not be someone they may or may not develop an interest in being in charging. Um, we're going to have to make a tough decision about whether or not you talk to them. And that's going to be based on an analysis of things like, is it better to get ahead of this? Do you want to be in a position to cooperate? Is it possible we'll convince them not to charge you? Or is it more likely you'll incriminate yourself and they will charge you? And there are going to be all sorts of complicated decisions like that. So it really depends on the particular facts. And those decisions, those presumably are influenced by whether or not you're really guilty of the thing that they're looking at by this point, right? They are. Yeah. Uh, and that's part of the uh, the careful debriefing that you have to do with this potential client. And that brings us to the core of the whole business, of all this advice uh, that for any type of case, uh, the absolute essential. Mm-hmm. And that is you have to tell your lawyer the truth. Not just for the lawyer's benefit. This is for the client's benefit that the client is honest with the lawyer. This is absolutely for you, the client's benefit. I mean, the lawyer will probably make more money long term if the client lies because everything's <laughs> going to go pear-shaped and the lawyer's going to be on the case longer. It's so important and people you know, react like you just did, uh-huh, like it's obvious and easy. And, I, and I'm here to tell you it is really, really not. Coming in with the attitude that you're going to tell the complete truth to the stranger you just met about things that are often uncomfortable or sensitive is deeply weird. It's like committing, okay, I'm going to go meet the lawyer and I'm going to be naked. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's on that level of preparing for something well outside your comfort zone. Right. And I'm not cynically saying everyone out there is a liar. I'm more saying there's certain ways we talk about things and to people and we don't necessarily, with most people, you know, be harshly self-critical and extremely precise and let out all the bad things that might have happened. So it's very hard to overemphasize how difficult this can be. Many times I have spent hours, hours with clients who are good people, family people, never been in trouble before, who just couldn't get their head around telling me the whole truth. And they were embarrassed they hadn't fully dealt with it and admitted it to themselves. It really hurt their self-image. And they didn't tell me the full truth till later and after things had gone sideways. And those are people who get a worse result. You know, usually I can mitigate damage. Uh, but if you don't tell me the whole truth from the very start, then things are going to go badly. And what I always tell people is, look, it would be perfectly normal for you not yet to feel comfortable telling me everything that's happened. And I want you, if you don't feel comfortable, just to say, I don't feel comfortable talking about this completely yet. And that's fine. But don't lie to me. Because if particularly in this type of situation where there haven't been charges yet, I'm going to make important decisions about my advice that are going to be based on what you tell me. And if you tell me, oh, I, I didn't do anything, I didn't do this, I didn't do that, they have it wrong, it's this coworker who has it out for me, and then I make decisions based on that, okay, well, let's go in and talk to them. 
and it turns out you did all those things, then that's going to go badly. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think I, I mean, I, I see some obvious ways of that. I'm trying to, I, I want, want to ask sort of if I'm seeing all of them or if there are additional problems I'm not even thinking of. That it's basically like, you know, you might go in and lie in that interview and then you might get additional charges for lying or you might go into the interview and because the attorney thinks that you, basically don't have anything to hide here, then you go in and even if you answer questions truthfully in the interview, you may provide information that is incriminating, but the lawyer doesn't realize it's incriminating because there's other information unknown to the lawyer that is known to the government. Are those the big issues? What, what else goes wrong when you, when you lie to your attorney? Uh, those are big issues. The others are blowing your value as a cooperator or witness. So say you have done something wrong and Ultimately, I'm going to decide the best advice to you is to cooperate, take the most optimal plea possible, and then act as a cooperator and work off your sentence. Reduce it as low as possible. But let's say instead of being up front from the start, you lie. You just destroyed your value as a witness and therefore as a cooperator because it's been established that you lied to the government. So why wouldn't you lie to the jury? So all of a sudden, your value as a cooperator plummets my ability to help you work off that sentence plummets. The government loses trust and faith in you, and you're not going to get as good of a deal. And all of a sudden, you're left with a shitty decision between taking this to trial or trying to convince the judge, despite the fact that you lied for the first few times, that you're a good person and you should get credit. So, I mean, I can, I can see a couple of obvious psychological barriers here to being a good client in, the, in this area, besides what you described, that simply this, this very odd situation of having to very instantly trust somebody who you don't know with with dark secrets. One is that, I mean, if someone has committed a crime, very often they've already been concealing the fact that they engaged in that activity because it was illegal. They were used to lying about this. It's something that they are, they are in the habit of. Um, maybe they are, you know, on average going to be people who are less trustworthy. People who commit crimes are probably less less trustworthy uh, on average. And then also when you, when you talk about, you know, well, you have to be honest so you can get the best plea deal possible. I assume people who have not previously been convicted of a crime have a lot of time wrapping around their heads the idea that they are going to be convicted of a crime and that therefore it can be a good deal where they agree to plead to something and maybe they're going to end up with some jail time but less. I assume people have a lot of denial about that initially and it's hard to get into the mind frame where you're strategizing in a way where you are agreeing to be convicted of a crime and to be punished for a crime. Absolutely. That's right. I mean, and I don't put it as starkly to clients as I just did to you. Uh, but the the idea of admitting something that you did that you now know was wrong gets bundled in their minds together with sort of as if even though I'm their lawyer, it gets bundled in their minds together with like giving up with, um, you know, being convicted. A lot of the time, the trouble is um, they feel that admitting it to me is part of a package with admitting it to their spouse and their kids and their community, which is very hard for them. And so because of that, perfectly decent people, uh, people who would never cheat on their taxes or on their spouse or, you know, you, you trust otherwise will just make these dumb choices about lying because they, they just can't emotionally get to the place where they're going to be open about it. So we've talked about what you would advise about talking to the government when the government wants to talk to you. People also often have an urge to talk 
to members of the public, either because like Sam Bankman Freed, they are prominent and they have a public image that they are trying to defend. Or even if you're not a prominent person, you may have, you know, relatives and business associates and other people around you who may have questions about what what's going on. You may want to have messaging to them uh, that aims to defend your reputation. And so I mean, I assume that it's not as simple as that you can never say anything to any of those people, right? I mean, does a, a good client, can they come up with their lawyer about, you know, like firm yet vague denial language? I am innocent of these charges, that sort of thing. You come up with things that you can say in those situations where you do need to say something. Absolutely. The trouble comes with people freelancing, mm -hmm. uh, telling themselves, well, I'm a public figure. I have to tell my public something. Or I'm the CEO of a company. The company has to say something and I've got to direct it. In my view, it is extremely rare where it is absolutely necessary that you say something before you talk to a lawyer. You know, the, the, the scenario where the only lawyer in the world is on vacation and I have to make a statement by, by close of business is usually, usually more self-imposed than reality. So, yes, as long as you communicate clearly to the person who's giving you legal advice – these are the things. On the one hand, I don't want to incriminate myself or make things worse. On the other, things are going to go very, very badly if we don't make some sort of statement pretty soon. The lawyer can evaluate that and give you advice about it. And, uh, you know, we do a lot of disaster mitigation. We do a lot of crisis management. And often, you know, we have ideas about how you can manage this. And often it is about very carefully worded statements. Often it is about having someone else make the statement. Um, often it is uh, things like, you know, we look forward to speaking with the government agents about this. Uh, all we'll say now is that these reports are incorrect, whatever it is. You have to remember again that if you're in crisis, you're probably not making good decisions. So your decisions about what to say is probably flawed. And that's another reason to get this good advice. Half the time people want to put out these combative statements or these, you know, oh, woes me, everything is fallen to ashes, I did wrong statements or whatever it is, these extremes that if you prod them, you can convince them they don't actually need to do. Uh, the world isn't falling down today. We can maintain calm. Okay, so suppose the FBI has reached out to you, they've requested an interview, you declined to speak with them initially, said, I want to talk with my lawyer, and then I may talk with you. You hire an attorney, the attorney gives you some advice about whether to speak with the government, maybe you in fact do speak with the government, there's an interview with your attorney present, you may make some brief public statement of this nature, depending on, you know, exactly the nature of what's going on. Then I assume in a lot of situations, what happens next is basically nothing for quite some time, right? And I assume that's very uncomfortable for a lot of the defendants. Like you've had this interview. In some cases, maybe, you know, maybe it's it's so simple and easily cleared up that you get a nearly immediate indication, okay, we're not going to charge you. But I assume very often you, you, you have to wait for, what, months? Could it be more than a year? While you're, you sort of have this hanging over your head. And, and, and I, I'm guessing that very often the correct thing for the client to do during that period is very little. But uh, that, that sounds like it could be quite difficult. 
Oh, it is very difficult. And I, I often tell people that you know, delay is going to be your worst enemy and your best friend. It's going to be miserable. You're going to be stressed. The urge to do something is going to grow. But generally, the longer delay, the more the chance that uh, you know, something good rather than something bad will happen. When things happen fast, you know, whether it's Michael Avenatti getting immediately charged when he tries to uh, <laughs> extort Nike or, or Sam Bankman-Fried getting unusually quickly charged, that's usually bad. So uh, what you need to do is, you know, this is why you talk frankly with your lawyers. You have to build up a level of trust with them so you can live with following their advice. A key thing about dealing with a lawyer is, you know, not treating them as like a, an attack dog or as some, you know, intimidating other. You have to be frank, not just about what you've done, what the facts are. You need to be frank about your concerns, your fears, your expectations. It's very common for lawyers to get calls from people who are unhappy with their current lawyer. Mm hmm. And what I usually say is, well, have you expressed this unhappiness? And for some reason, a lot of people will ditch a relationship, whether it's legal or otherwise, without trying to talk it out. Hmm. You need to talk it out with your lawyer. I like email communications because then they can, you know, read carefully what I've sent them before. If, you know, the not this was ever happened if they weren't listening carefully when I was talking. Um, <laughs> and uh, you need to communicate with your lawyer. Say, like, look. I asked you this question, you have an answer that's making me anxious, or mm -hmm. I told you about these three concerns and we still need to talk about how we're going to address them. Or, you know, I sent you an email three weeks ago and you haven't responded and that's making me anxious. You know, you, if your lawyer's not making you happy, then you need to express that unhappiness. Mm -hmm. You need to be willing to do that. And your unhappiness may be unreasonable. So, you know, if you expect your lawyer to call you back within the hour every day, um, that's not going to be reasonable often. Uh, but if you expect your lawyer to respond to you within a few days, most of the time, then that's going to be reasonable. Mm -hmm. And so I, that waiting game, I mean, it's the obviously stressful for people and it's understandable why that would, you know, the it's, it's hard for people to wait about, you know, things that are momentous and, and scary like this. But also, I mean, to the extent that these issues relate to business and professional activities, I assume very often it's greatly interfering with their ability to work and, and, and gain their livelihoods. I mean, you know, I mean, one of the things that, that you said near the beginning is, you know, don't talk to the other people who were involved in the matters that are being investigated. If those are your business associates, does that mean you have to stop working? For an extended period, a lot of people are going to be really unwilling to do that, won't be able to afford to do that. How do you like what if the it's really disruptive to the ordinary course of your life to follow some of these instructions in a way that, you, that that's not merely just like, I don't like doing this? Well, sure. And usually, unless things are very bad, it's not going to be don't talk to your coworkers about anything. It's going to be don't talk to your coworkers about that transaction that happened three years ago. Mm -hmm. And that's doable. Okay. This is another situation where being extremely upfront with your lawyer and talking things out with them is very important. Troubles happen when, you know, your lawyer's instructions about who to talk to is causing a barrier to your ability to operate, but you're not conveying that to the lawyer so they can troubleshoot it. Mm -hmm. You need to say, look, these are the people I need to talk to to do the job. These are the subjects I typically talk to them about. Is that a problem? Can I keep doing that? 
and your lawyer will tell you yes or no. And your lawyer will maybe give you some stock phrases or, or canned responses if they ever bring something up and you'll find a solution. You may decide to take risks. You may decide to continue doing a business that's under suspicion, uh, operating something where the government thinks that what you're operating may be illegal. As long as you make that decision with legal advice, with your eyes open, that's that's what we're looking for here, that you've explained all the factors, you've told the lawyer why you feel you need to keep doing this, and the lawyer has said, okay, here are the upsides, here are the downsides, you can make the call, but I advise X. A big complaint that you hear a lot from doctors over the last 15, 20 years is, is, is about Dr. Google and that basically, you know, people show <laughs> up at the medical practice having already diagnosed themselves quite often incorrectly and that basically the doctor is like competing with the patient who is you know, trying to turn themselves into, into an in instant expert with internet research. I assume you see this in, in law too? Absolutely. And ironically, often from doctors. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it, people tend to think that if they're smart, they're smart about everything. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they tend to go researching, um, kind of lawyers call it doom Googling, where, you know, oh, God, I saw someone who was charged with something that has three of the same numbers in it, and uh, they went to jail for life or something like that. <laughs> or, you know, I saw this thing in a different jurisdiction under a different law and state rather than federal, and this happened, why aren't you doing that? Or whatever it is. So I usually tell clients that I'm not going to tell them not to research, but that I rarely find that research makes them better informed, happier, and more likely makes them more stressed and more upset. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think as a client, you want to – I use that doctor analogy a lot uh, because people can relate to that. And I say, look, you know – when you research stuff without the baseline, you don't really know what you're getting. You don't see how the pieces fit together. You're smart enough to understand it. If you put the work in, you're smart enough to understand, to read any one of the pieces, but you don't have the experience to see how they fit together. And so you're going to come to incorrect conclusions, and it's probably just going to terrify you a lot and undermine your confidence in your attorney. Some people still do it. And so with some clients, I have to spend a lot of time about dissuading them from some legal theory they came up with that, uh, you know, is completely misguided. But you see how someone who didn't know the law reading these three separate things might tie them together somehow. Okay, so so we're in this situation. You've hired your lawyer. You've taken these initial steps. You're waiting. You are following your your lawyer's advice not to make too many moves and not to try to panic and do things in your defense while you're waiting and, and hoping that the government decides that it doesn't have a ton of interest in you. Uh, what what else do you do during that period in order to ensure that that your uh, relationship is as productive as possible? Okay, well, first of all, hopefully your lawyer has told you don't delete anything, don't throw anything away, preserve all documents and records, and you follow that instruction. It's likely, whether it's a criminal or civil case, your lawyer is going to be asking you to thoroughly search all your records, whether, you know, you use paper records and you have a folder or whether, like most of us, you just have, you know, two million Gmails and, and tons of stuff on your high drive and a bunch of stuff in the cloud. You need to actually, when your lawyer asks you to look for things, don't half-ass it. Do it seriously. Think methodically and carefully. This about, has been an issue for Donald Trump. <laughs> well, exactly. You're going to think, okay, what computers have I worked on documents about this incident? 
where are those computers? I'm going to look at each one carefully. I'm going to look all over them. I'm going to rack my brain for anywhere that may have a, a single bite of information or scrap of paper. And I'm going to take it seriously as if it matters how well I do it, because it does. Uh, and one of the things I, I get is that uh, sometimes is clients will say, oh, yeah, I looked very thoroughly for any texts or emails about this issue. And halfway into the case, the other side comes up with some devastating email. And they go, okay, well, I guess I didn't look in that folder or whatever it is. And mm -hmm. a lot of the time, this is going to be saving you money. Because if you ask your lawyer to do all that digging and searching, that's, that's time on the clock, my friend. And that's going to cost mm -hmm. you more money. So this is in every way in your best interest. And so uh, we've, we've talked a lot about all of the things that you can do to be a good client and the way that that will help you. It's not just for your lawyer's benefit. But, but another thing that we've talked a lot about on these podcasts is not all lawyers are good. Um, and sometimes the problem is a bad client, but sometimes the problem is a bad lawyer or a bad client with a bad lawyer. What do you do? I mean, first of all, like you, you talk about sometimes people are dissatisfied for reasons that are ultimately unreasonable. How do you figure out if your dissatisfaction is warranted? And then what do you do if you realize, actually, I have the wrong lawyer, I need a different lawyer? Well, some things are always unsatisfactory or bad practice by lawyers. Not keeping in contact, not responding to your concerns, repeatedly failing to answer questions, doing things that gets them sanctioned by judges in your case <laughs> is a bad sign. Um, all of these things. One thing that's very problematical is when you just don't like your lawyer's advice. And you've got to make this very difficult call. Is this just that I want a lawyer who would tell me what I want to hear, which is bad thinking? Or is this this person doesn't seem to understand this area of law or does not seem to be willing to talk through alternatives? So what I try to do is even if, you know, I'm even I think one course of conduct is clearly the right one. If one strategy is clearly right, you have to be willing to sit there and describe the other ones and how they would play out. And if you're not, then the client's not going to trust you. So will my lawyer spend the time with me to explain why they're recommending X and not Y? That's a big one. Maybe you'll hear more as a relationship goes on about the lawyer's reputation that concerns you. Maybe you'll consult with a different lawyer who will have a different view. It's hard. And this is not something where there's a magical way for it to come out right every time. And one problem is just as if the lawyer you hire might not be a good lawyer or an ethical lawyer, the lawyer you go consult may not be a, a good lawyer or ethical lawyer. So, you know, we lo lose clients to lawyers who are willing to tell them what they want to hear. Oh, you've got a great case. Oh, you know, I can get you a misdemeanor on this, hmm. even if Ken says he can't. All that sort of thing. And, and you know, you've, you've got to be careful about whether or not you're dissatisfied with what the law is or whether you're dissatisfied with the lawyer's ability to analyze it and tell, you, tell it to you. I mean, are there are also situations there where there's, there's two options and neither one is the clearly correct options, just sort of like different philosophies or different preferences about how, how aggressive to be in a certain situation where you just sort of need like an alignment between the attorney and the client? Sure. And there, you know, I'm, I, I try to be very frank where I say, these are the choices. This is my unequivocal recommendation, but ultimately it's your call. I think doing this would be a bad idea, but you can do it if you want. So mm -hmm. um, that's something to think about. And, and you want to kind of make sure your lawyer has explained to you 
whether it really is, this is the only decision or whether it just is, you know, this is a values call. And the, the reason I'm recommending it is how expensive uh, it's going mm-hmm. to be or something like that. So I guess the, to review, because we've covered a lot of ground here, the situation arises where you need an attorney for a dispute. Um, so if it's, you know, if this is a, a criminal matter uh, and, you know, some law enforcement officials come to you, you don't talk to them initially. You say, thank you. I'll talk with my lawyer. You don't talk until you have the lawyer. You ask people you trust for referrals. You continue not talking about the substance of the matter to people outside while you're doing that. You listen to your lawyer. You give him a clear description of the relevant matters, the situation that you are facing, um, because that will help you uh, resolve matters as, as quickly and easily as possible. You try to chill out during that process. Don't use Google too much. Try to go on to, with your life according to your lawyer's advice. Listen to that advice about who to talk to and about what, and then quite possibly you end up having to sit and cool your heels for quite a while before you figure out whether it all worked. Does that sound right? Is it, am I missing key points? That sounds right. I would just add, in general, try to be self-aware and self-critical. So if you're disagreeing with your lawyer and you're deciding you're going to do something anyway against the lawyer's advice, ask yourself, am I doing this because I think I know everything and I'm always right and I'm the smartest one in the room? Uh, or is this, you know, difference in values and uh, this is my call to make and it's reasonable for me to disagree and go a different way? Uh, if it's the former, don't do it. If it's the latter, then just do it advisedly, knowing, okay, I, I'm making a different choice, but I'm confident it's for good, the right reason. Well, I think that's enough serious trouble for this week. Ken, I, I really appreciate you you taking the time to walk through some of this. I mean, this is a theme that comes up over and over again in the coverage that we do, and it might end up even being useful personally to, to certain people who listen to the show and might end up in unfortunate circumstances for one reason or another. So, so thank you very much. Well, let's hope not, and let's hope everything goes smoothly for them if it does. Tell us what you think of this episode, any questions that you might have about what we discussed here and the the, uh, the, the points and, and recommendations that came in it. Um, or, of course, you know, any other serious trouble that interests you. We'll be back in January with more episodes on all of the, uh, the figures in the news that we know and love, like uh, Elon Musk and Sam Bankman-Fried and uh, former President Trump. During that time, you can reach us by email. The email is ricohotline at serioustrouble.show. Uh, and you can join the conversation about this episode and all the other episodes at serioustrouble.show. And we have gift subscriptions. So it's, you know, it's the holiday season. If there's somebody you know who is absolutely impossible to shop for or somebody you know who really needs advice about, you know, how to how to be a good legal client in a, in a difficult legal situation, or maybe both of those things, impossible to shop for and uh, prone to being criminally charged. I'm Ken White. And I'm Josh Barrow. Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's me and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosier. This is Serious Trouble. More headed your way soon.